when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. We are back. That's not how I start a podcast. This is a new podcast. Looks good, internet. This is the last I mean, one. Every time there's a new podcast, Austin. we are back. Uh, every time, yeah, we are back. Yeah. That's a fun. That's a fun. It's not mine, but that's a fun intro to a podcast. We are back. You know, just being like, we're back. Yeah. Hey, back again in your ears. Uh, that's how mm. I feel about the podcast in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm Austin Walker. Joining me again, Gita Jackson, Patrick Klepek, Rob Zachney, Ricardo Contreras. I'm moving fast because we only have 55 minutes of Patrick left. And then Patrick turns into a pumpkin. Oh yeah, other way around. So, so does Gita. Like we're well, like you know, it's, it's the about, end of I the year. Pull, it's all coming I pull, down. I will, here I will pull up this. Um, well, my God, Nest camera. And I then see. Whenever, whenever the when it's go April time, fold, it's go time. Eighty-three right. percentile yeah. in height and weight. Just a big, big baby. Uh, <laughs> a big baby wakes up. <laughs> what a big baby. The opposite mm-hmm. of her, the opposite of her sister, who was a tiny, tiny baby. But whenever mm-hmm. that big yeah, baby wakes meeting. up, oh, that beautiful baby, that beautiful big potato of a baby. Um, <laughs> yeah, my meeting's been pushed back to one fifteen, so oh, we've wow. got fifteen more minutes room. of Gita. We may as well just hang out then and not even get to the topic at hand. We yeah. have <laughs> like, like the tree. That's my favorite part of of podcasting. Yeah, just shooting the shit. Who cares about <laughs> the topic? Don't talk about the thing that you downloaded the episode. I love for I love it when that happens. It could be fun. It could be a nice time. You know, you're just hanging out with your friends. They're talking about whatever they did this this week, which is a good thing because I guess actually that is kind of the podcast you're, you're about to listen to. This is our Waypoints of the Year podcast, which we all bring something to talk about that uh, was part of our life in the hell year of 2020. Um, uh, you know, I feel like uh, unlike our Game of the Year, there probably won't be as much overlap here, though there almost was. Um, <laughs> who wants to kick it off with with what they brought to the table? I feel like Rob, do you also have a hard out at one? No. Okay. Well, then Patrick or Gita should go first. Uh, okay. Yeah. So um, mine uh, uh, waypoint of the year um, is uh, oh, this is it's it's so funny that I picked this be- is that uh, the King Cast, which is a uh, podcast uh, hosted by. Uh, Scott Wampler, formerly of uh, the wonderful website uh, Birth, Movies, Death, before um, that all crumbled earlier this year, um, and Eric Vespi, who, uh, if you, like me, grew up on the internet in the 90s and read a lot of Ain't It Cool News um, back before it was revealed that the guy who runs that is a terrible, horrible person, um, <laughs> Quint on on, on uh, Ain't It Cool News um, is uh, Eric Vespi, um, who does a lot of uh, freelance film writing and also co-hosts um the king cast um yeah like in 
the beginning of this year, starting, um, I made a decision when the our Elizabeth, our our newest baby, was born, that I wasn't going to play games. I played, I finished Final Fantasy VII because I wanted to do the spoiler cast. I played Gears Tactics because I needed some sort of outlet, and that proved to be like psychologically valuable. But I wanted to one like lots of media just wasn't coming out. Like the whole media industry was just like fuck. Like what? Do, <laughs> how are we going to release things? Um, and so that ecosystem was falling apart and I had made just like a personal choice. It's like, there's so many things that I have always wanted to watch that I haven't. And like, where, like, where do you grasp at in figuring that out? And the King cast launched and I've always, I am a Stephen King fan, but the, what I've learned from the King cast is that so much of my Stephen King fandom is cultural osmosis mm. versus actually having engaged with either the textual or cinematic work of Stephen King. Because what I came to realize was that constantly be like, I've seen Misery. <laughs> nope. Um, I haven't actually. I could tell you all the major beats of Misery, but I haven't actually sat and watched that film. Like, huh. I know that Stand By Me is a very important film, like for a lot of like boys that uh, grew up of a certain age. I know that. I I certainly saw that. No, I have not seen Stand By Me. Um, and so the structure of King cast is each week there is uh, a guest, um, maybe like a Mike Flanagan, you know, a very prominent horror writer, director who does a lot of Stephen King adaptations, uh, uh, Camille Nanjiani, like uh, folks of various prominence, podcasters um, who bring to the table a Stephen King uh, work that means something to them. Um, it has to be something personal that like th this is either something they grew up on or they have a personal connection to. And they talk about both the book and cinematic version and how that ties into um, that person's like personal history with King. And so this gave me like this very cool roadmap to explore this part of my sort of like cultural, like personal fandom identity. And also just like, oh, each week, like here is the thing in front of me. Like I'm, I don't have the time to watch the books or even re listen to the audiobooks, but I can watch the movies uh, versions of a lot of this stuff. And I just found this to be like really satisfying and interesting and illuminating on like what you think you personally know, um, both about a work and even what you've seen like over the course of your lifetime. Um, and it's been nice in the same way that we've talked about games to have like objectives and goals. It's cool to like every Friday, it's like, oh, like here's the new movie I'm going to watch this weekend. And then I've got a podcast to pair with it. Um, and I, it has just brought me constant joy over the the, the course of, of of the year and, and i think quite like the other this is shot what's the other stephen king podcast i want to make sure we get it out here even though i'm talking oh, about a different one absolutely just king things just king things yes. <laughs> just did their episode on the stand for on instance. the stand yeah uh yeah. this was almost my just just king things was almost my waypoint of the year also which would have made this a very easy waypoints uh because we would have just had dueling king casts <laughs> um, uh, shout outs to, to, in fact, in fact, really quick, like the, the, the short version of my choosing this as my, my, uh, my waypoints would have actually just been the range touch network more generally. Um, uh, I do a lot of listening to their podcast. They also have a great podcast called game study study buddies. Um, this is, this is Michael Lutz and Cameron Kunzelman. Uh, there's also Danny who, who I've only seen in streams and, and their mages and murder dads, Baldur's Gate retrospective stuff. Uh, but for me, Cam and Michael's stuff in Game Study Study Buddies and then Just King Things has been so useful in keeping a part of my brain active that, it has fallen apart this year because I don't have a commute to read on. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I, my podcast listening is in the drain. Like 
without walking around my neighborhood to go like just on a walk to go to a restaurant or to go to a store that now I'm just getting stuff delivered or whatever is is has taken so much of that away and also obviously the commute into the office um and so uh having their voices there and also having them be just incredible cultural critics and and smart academics on game study study buddies uh has been so useful in not making my brain turn into a raisin um they 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 are much less the like here's our personal story with this king thing uh they're just king things podcast is very much like a beat by beat breakdown of the stories of any sort of like the background history on the production of the book or of any sort of the adaptations that they talk about um and then is is kind of a critical conversation about topics uh uh you know form uh theme etc um uh, they are fantastic and and highly recommend them as well uh, no celebrity guests as of yet but i really believe in their ability to get the director of a bunch of King books slash movies. What is the, what is that dude's name who directed? Flanagan. Is that, is that his name? Yeah. Mike oh, Flanagan. Yeah. Mike, he, yeah. you know, yeah. Haunting on Hill House. He, he, you know, he did, uh, I mean, that was his original uh, work right. on, on, on Netflix, but yeah, he's, he's, he did Dr. Sleep. Um, right. And right, right, right. Other, uh, I believe King, in them. King they Wars. can get them. Please make it work, work out. They would, that would be a very fantastic conversation. Um, but yeah, no, and I think for me, the thing that's interesting, too, is my relationship with King is is different than you, or it's similar to yours, in that it's a cultural osmosis thing. King's work is so core to contemporary American popular literature um, that partly through just film osmosis, but also just through like having friends who've told me about stuff that happens in, in it. Or that happened in the stand that I wouldn't have known about because it's not in the adaptations. Or, but or Cujo, which was another right, one that I was totally. like, I've seen Cujo, and then I watched it and I was like, I haven't seen <laughs> Cujo. <laughs> um, you know, like I mean, like there is probably no more prominent writer like of our lifetimes and the lifetime before us than King. That doesn't mean yes. he's the best, no, but or or even the most important. But I don't know that there's been a writer that's had more wider pop culture influence than Stephen King. And it's, oh, it's that, not. that's, that's been the realization yes. of like listening to King cast is, is in, and I'm sure is similar on, on just King things is just the sweep of, of, it's of just like, work. Oh, is this like, where like, this I, started? Is this where this like writers, cultural meme began in some cases? Do you know what I mean? Like writers um, simply weren't famous in the way that Stephen King was famous <laughs> before Stephen King became Stephen King. He, you know, he every almost everything this homie has written automatically gets optioned for a movie. <laughs> There's like it, it, that just didn't that just wasn't happening. This this is a guy that set a certain kind of path for a writer. Like he's. Even if you don't like James Patterson, like this is this is what Stephen King has wrought. That is his impact on the culture. He's like essentially the Beatles creating the yeah. phenomenon of pop music. But even there, you had like James Patterson was willing to sell anything on any dotted yeah. line, and couldn't catch up with like yeah. King. Like he never, yeah. like never, never maintained the like King with like still maintained some literary cachet, like pretty pretty far along there's still yeah. highs and lows in that in that catalog and some well, of the adaptations when he was are like, like doing like automatic writing on a bunch of fucking painkillers and writing dreamcatcher and shit <laughs> mm-hmm. he did care about like the, his own integrity and craft and like actually we can tell reading his writing that he thinks of himself as a writer and not as a person who is doing some you know like he likes likes the act of writing and well, wants he, to push himself to be a better writer even if i think the things he likes about his writing are not uh-huh. the things i like about his writing i just <laughs> really I, quick, 
really oh, quick, ahead. really quick. I just, I was like, hmm, how does he stack up? Biggest author of all time, I typed into Google. Google's, uh-huh. auto, there's a link, list of best-selling fiction authors. But Google's automatic response was like, Roald Dahl, 6'6", six, six. George Orwell, 6'2", John Grisham, 6'1", John Steinbeck, 6'1". <laughs> <six, laughs> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, biggest ones of all time. Let's go. Kafka was six foot even, baby. Why does Roald Dahl, the largest popular author, not simply eat? <laughs> It's incredible. <laughs> shout outs. Shout outs to Google not knowing how people think. But no, yes, yes, yes. I, I think like one of the things also that's 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 unique about this is going back to what you were saying is like King's work has been adapted. So much of King's work has been adapted. And so well, much why of do it I like is Lost? Different. Because Lost is actually just an adaptation of the stand, of the stand with like, right. a, like yes. a, with a di- with a different sort of like cast of characters and a slightly tweaked premise like right, it's a, right. so many of the things that i you know the, the x-files like deeply influenced by like Which Stephen did, king did in, they, like, a serialized you, form does does did the um king cast talk about how the stand itself is an adaptation of lord of the rings i it's, they it's, haven't done, I, they haven't done the stand yeah they were yeah 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 the, uh, king sets out to write me. the american lord of the rings one of his big things is from this most recent episode of just king things one of his things was like it's really hard to look at the maps of of like these fantasy worlds I should make one set in a map we already know. People already know where Vegas is. People already know where Oklahoma and uh, and Denver and all these places are. We, I can just map that in. And then it's just like very – once you start going down that so path, wait, like, oh, this guy is the Gandalf. The, or a it's bio like Gandalf weapons lab is Numenor? <laughs> yes. Sure. <laughs> almost certainly, right? Um, it's not a clean – it's not like – it's – in some places, it's a one-to-one adaptation in terms of like, okay, this is a character pulled by evil, but who has his own desires also. And in other cases, it's very much the like, this is a character who is supposed to be the kind of like walking sociologist who understands all of the culture and who st- stands in for that part of who Gandalf is. This is the character who is very much the, the you know, the Sauron, who is like a, a, a living embodiment of evil or whatever. Anyway, um, uh, uh, I think that it is... The ways in which those books and those stories hang over us, even if King isn't the most, you know, the highest selling author of all time, I think there is an there is an important distinction. You might not like King, but you actually like King. You just don't. Yeah. You just don't know it because he his his influence has spread into so many other works in different ways that it's just it's impossible to ha- to ignore because it's just everywhere. And his genre space like is huge. His genre space. Well, is, he did Stand by Me, right? right like you. Right. My guess yeah. is there are people who. Like like don't like horror, like saw Stand by Me or even a misery, which is like more is more thriller than mm-hmm. horror, right? Like is is more adjacent and um and you could count that as one of their favorite works and not even realize that it's a king uh a piece of fiction. Especially if you'd only watched like the the cinematic adaptations by which uh I mean Rob Reiner did both Misery and uh Stand by Me. Right. Do either of these podcasts get into why people were so excited for the Dark Tower? And why nobody cares about the Dark Tower anymore? Just King thinks. Wow, what is yet, your argument that nobody cares about the Dark Tower? Wow. I, mean, the movie I really want Rob. Shots motherfucking <laughs> fire right now. Should it's I read the Dark be... Tower? Brap, it's brap. always been the one where I've been like, this seems sick as shit, but I hear it gets so bad that it's not worth going down it's, the rabbit um, hole. It, 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 well, one, I would say, I uh, is a this is not a controversial type, but like I like, I think it sticks the landing. King is famously bad at endings, and mm-hmm. I think the ending to the Dark Tower is. Is is brilliant and um, it thematically fits everything. He like it's just re- it's really good. It 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 is all it is. I would argue good enough that the last three books that he wrote after he almost died panicked and like wrote in a hurry, thus sort of like unwinding. Yeah. 
a lot of the good stuff that he did in the first four books. It's still worth it. The first four books are uh, like some of my like most treasured like experiences, like reading, like period. Um, and the characters, I think if you if you read the first four books, you'll understand why Dark Tower fans are like so fanatical about like that series. I also think it's unadaptable. Like it's just, I mean, that could be its own spinoff podcast on like wh- why the dark tower doesn't work as, as like being adapted into other mediums, but it's, it is, it is certainly worth uh, reading those first four books for, for sure. And at that point you'll just be like, fuck it. I guess I'll read these, these other three to see how he, how he wraps it up because <laughs> there's a specific thing that happens in the sixth book that okay. like has to be read to be believed. Spo- I won't, no, don't spoil you're it. Read it. I don't want to spoil it. Now I'm thinking about it. it. The, there's, yeah. there's a thing that happens that is just so audacious. It's like, man, you f- fucking asshole. Yeah. Like, yeah. what? why? And he's apologized for it. He has apologized yeah, for all geez. of it and said that if he, he, he wrote those books in a hurry thinking that he finally, for a man that writes, you know, about death, had never really kind of reckoned with his own mortality. And then when he almost dies, gets off of drugs and alcohol, um, finished his, like, his own, ep- his actual Lord of the Rings became the Dark Tower. Right. right. And... He writes those books in a hurry, knows he fucked them up, wishes he could rewrite them. I'm not convinced won't. he won't because he does that so many times. Like he the rewrites stand- them in like yeah, has two editions, right? The, the normal like 500 and the extra pages edition. in the uncut <laughs> edition or something. If he so. quite literally at one point just said, "I'm just going," the thing it the, my I understanding. Okay, there, there, I there can is because I'm from the outside looking in. I mean, I can't spoil things. My understanding right. about the mythology of that world is such yes. that. There is space for things to fictionally change in a way that would be coherent or consistent with the metaphysical laws of that world and the places that it moves around in without necessarily being without undoing anything in the original seven books. Yes. 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 Okay. Yep. That's my understanding. Mm-hmm. My my brief one the my my King thing my thing was Stephen King which I, <laughs> I finally started reading it and was like very definitely surprised by the sensitivity of the plotline about abuse which was I feel like has been fumbled in every film adaptation of it um, but is they just very ignore it or do it very complex. very poorly like yeah. the opening like of it chapter two and yeah. you know in the, the the hate crime that occurs there is fucking is brutal in the book but it's like. Not it becomes it's so bad in the movie. Like the backbone of the book is about like you understand immediately when you read about that hate crime that it, it this is the backbone of the book. This is what Pennywise is. Pennywise is yep. the hate that lurks in small towns and it becomes yep. the lens through which you read the entire book. And I read it and I'm like that book is so long. I'm not going to finish it anytime soon. Nope. But it is. I was like, wow, this is this is thrilling. And this is a book. That's one of the cases where I feel like Stephen King absolutely 100 percent understands the thing that he wrote and he wrote it very intentionally. And you can see the work he did into building out these metaphors some of his work especially the stuff where you can tell he's just on a lot of painkillers i don't think he understands what he writes sometimes mm-hmm. i think well, the worst case example of that is the shining where he famously yeah. hated stanley kubik's the shining and it's because he sees jack as a uh, he sees jack <laughs> as himself obviously he sees jack as someone an alcoholic who's struggling with fatherhood but wants fundamentally to be a good father Whereas Stanley Kubrick saw that character and was like, this is an abusive man. And the horror story is that he finally gives in to his true nature. And, and like, I feel like there is, that is a, a friction between him and his work that comes up a lot for me. Where I just, like, I'm reading shit. And I'm like, you put some shit in here that you didn't even know that you put in here, man. Like, this is kind of weird. <laughs> the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave and we can then move on from, from King is that uh, like all this stuff that we're talking about in the King cast, they pointed out there was this interview where King talked about his writing process and it explains just 
everything mm-hmm. like if you're looking for like a key to unlock of like all his strengths and weaknesses as a storyteller is he doesn't do outlines he doesn't structure <laughs> his books ahead of time he just writes and then at a certain what? point the story is over that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which, which is you know I, I think is is in, yeah. you know his indication not was not that he doesn't think ahead at all but it's not as though he's like he's got like an outline that he's following like chapter 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 he just writes and that explains so much of like why he's great at openings great at middles bad at endings um <laughs> it's hard it's why he's a better short story you know his short stories are tremendous because he can't get himself into to trouble um <laughs> whether that's endings or race or, or or any other number of things that that yeah. Stephen yeah. King gets himself into trouble uh over but it's just that it's those fascinating tidbits that like um it's cool to better understand like an icon of your own like identity. Yeah. And like, that's what the King cast has, has given me. I, um, it sounds like yeah. just King thinks is also done. It, it, it totally has. And I'm, I'm actually happy enough actually on saying that like, that is, that is having talked through it. This, it, it has been the thing that's been with me the whole time this year. I do want to give them that credit. So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot and make that my waypoint of the year. We double King, double King casts. <laughs> Ooh. Um, wow. I will quickly shout out Lovecraft country, which I was going to bring up. Um, for, for similar reasons, which is like, I started, so I started watching that show when it first came out and then it fell off and I came back into it in the fall and then I fell off of it. And then I watched the final few episodes this week. Um, all time great pilot, great pilot. Um, but messy as, as hell in a way it's interesting because I, I left it feeling like that's a show that starts by saying, you know, this is an imperfect, it starts by, by having a black character read a Lovecraft book uh and uh and someone basically saying like that book is extremely racist and him being sort of like you dance with the one who brought you like yes uh i love this thing because it's imperfect i love this thing despite its imperfections i love like a person who despite their imperfections um i i find i find a way to connect to it and i'm not you know blind to its to its uh imperfections and to its deep problems but i have to find a way to integrate it into my life because it touches me in this other way um, and, and then it's a story very much about people who are all bad people in many ways. Um, the ways in which that they hurt each other and are deeply selfish, uh, throughout the story is, is fascinating. Uh, for the, the high level of it is like, it's a, it's a 1960s, uh, you know, um, kind of horror anthology in which each episode, despite having a, a continuous story, um, it takes huge genre shifts ranging from, time travel stories to like alien adventures to uh an indiana jones or like national treasure ish episode where like you're doing lots of like puzzle solving in an ancient tomb um two to- more total shifts on that show are house stuff i i, I, just, I, I inside of the same the episode wa- even sometimes yes. um yes. um and i think it it fumbles a lot i think that it like one you know the, one of the big criticisms of the show was the way that it handles queerness over, yes, over, time, just, over and over and over and again. There, there's like a yeah. two-spirit character uh, who shows up um, who is immediately disposed of for a very empty characterization reason that is like despicable. Um, uh, uh, there is, I think in general, even its use of black trauma often feels, it, it feels perf- performative in the in the way in which it wants to pull from a catalog of historical black traumas like the death of Emmett Till and the the you know Tulsa uh, uh, massacre. Um, uh, but I also – there is part of me that also wants to engage with it and, and, and kept coming back to it this year because 
one, it feels it does feel a kind to me to Watchmen, which came out last year, and which I was also not extremely hot on compared to most folks, often for similar reasons. But partly because it feels like it feels like we're in the middle of a stylistic shift in which this is the second of 10 of these types of shows we're going to get over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and it's so fascinating to me to see this process by which you know, talented filmmakers fumble the ball on their way to trying to make something really distinctive. Um, Misha Green, who I think was the showrunner on this, um, does some really incredible stuff here. Uh, and and I think in terms of playing in the anthology format, um, does stuff that is just like startlingly smart. Um, and yet when when she's telling other people's stories, she can't quite wrap her head around it. Um, or she's too quick to to deploy, again, wounds and trauma in a way to get a, a dramatic, quick effect and not necessarily in a way that um, ever feels like those folks are treated as an end to themselves. Um, and so that, that is to me like one of the things that I have been so interested in because this is an imperfect object that I'm nevertheless glad exists, not yeah. because I don't think that, that, that the missteps are you know acceptable uh, or something but because it is a it is a signpost on the road that we are on a road in which a, a different group of creators is being given the keys to a budget that lets them and, and to the freedom to do genre like experiments like this this is not like a straightforward show by any means uh and it's gross as shit like they go some places like in terms of the visual gore and horror that is I mean it's an HBO show so they can get away with it in a way. Yeah, but the, it, but, but even man. Uh, as someone that uh, uh, let's say revels in that stuff Dude. at times, um, the body horror, the skin sequences shit? are 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 really something else in yeah. in this show because it's sweet. It's, it's when it tone shifts, it doesn't just like you know some some shows or you know works like like are like adjusting a dial. Like this one just has like two extremes. Like it's just like when it shifts. It shifts and like like that's I respected the big swings and it feels like the weaknesses are just born out of the big swings um, in in which like there's just not enough time for a lot of different elements of the, yeah. the story and the characters to to breathe. And it's it's almost as though the show tried to marginalize those weaknesses and turn them into a strength by just like, well, let's just turn the page over here. Now we'll we're just over move here. On to, now we're um, in outer space. Now we're in. Um, it almost that episode is, like- is is incredible. Yeah, it almost felt like it was planned as a uh, like completely disparate anthology, but then someone came in and was like, no, we have to put a story to go through it. Well, it's an adaptation of a book that all, most of that stuff happens in. Really? Um, okay. so apparently is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's taking There's, whole cloth, and the, when the book, the show, the first season ends, that's where that's the book the end ends. That's the end of the book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So there is, stuff that's not, there is stuff that's not in the book. Um, the Korea chapter just isn't in the book at all, but the like stuff with the with space is in the book the stuff with the um i believe the the kind of um haunted house episode is in the book Mm. um all a lot of that stuff just comes but the book is this kind of collection of pulp stories in a similar way um and so and so yeah i think that's 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 all i want to say about that um it's it's such a fascinating show and i and i i i almost wish there is something in so, like, I guess it's worth saying the book is written by a white dude, right? Um, and I think that Green does a good job of adapting that material with a more authentic voice. Um, but I don't necessarily know that it can escape 
the ways in which black trauma, marginalized trauma were deployed in the in the, in the original material um, because there, there's almost a – there are times when it feels like it's treating things like an Easter egg. You realize, for instance, in one of the episodes that a, a bit character in an earlier episode was Emmett Till. You're like, oh, shit, she's friends with Emmett Till. And I don't know that I ever want that relationship with Emmett Till – uh, who is a boy who was like tragically and gruesomely killed um, for no reason um, by a, a group of bigots. Um, and I I can't pivot from that, from the ways in which it goes to like great ends to try to, not to try to situate the violence that's happening in these people's lives, but to kind of leverage leverage the context um to then having a character try to make me upset about how bad the funeral smelled because it was such a hot day and people could smell his body um cool. th those you don't get to give me like the like yo we stuck him into that ouija board scene uh and then also make me respond you know authentically to that the way that that stuff comes up um uh and yet, I was wrapped towards to the end of that story and curious about his mythology. Is like you want to watch Everyone a show so in which like, fucking good. Yes. <laughs> the acting like elevates like weakened uh, material. Like like Journey Smollett is just like tr tremendous yes. in in this show. Like she, I've seen her in a couple of different things, but never like she gets to the whole you know, the whole thing here. And she, she is just like remarkable in, and I mean, a lot of the acting is really great, but she stuck out, but it's like, oh, it's, it is one of those shows where like with lesser um, actors and actresses, oh, like, it'd be miserable. this would have but, fallen apart pretty quickly. Yes. Like they're just, they're just really just punching up this material, especially when it's weaker, where they just grab you and yes. you're like, I just want to see what these people do. I just, well, I just, want and, and, it, and it fully delivers on the initial story, the initial, initial pitch from that premise, which is, like, why can't we have a, a story of black folks doing pulp adventures? And it yeah. does it, and everyone is a huge fucking nerd as characters in this show. <laughs> yeah. uh, everyone has like some weird, you know, and and it's deeply touching when it can, when it when it wants to be. Um, and I I hope that well, you know, we'll see what season two looks like if there is a season two. Um, but but. Uh, yeah, an interesting thing worth talking about. At the Make it least. to the space episode, if nothing else. Or watch it out of context. Or watch it's it out of context. Actually, you can just jump you in. Would it's actually fine. don't need the rest. It's it fucking wild. It is just kind of remarkable that we're finally making it back to the place when we had uh, the television space where we used to have, where we used to have like six or seven different black uh -huh. sitcoms, <laughs> yeah. you know? We're yeah. finally making it back to a space where like black people can just be in a television show. And that show doesn't have to be like the magnum opus of the black experience it can just be a fun pulp show i'm so glad i think that there was some really kind of unfair and weird criticism of lovecraft country when it first came out because people were expecting a revelation uh, of storytelling on the scale of uh get out for instance um mm -hmm. and it's not that but that's absolutely fine that's fine <laughs> Yeah. Well, Jordan Peele was involved in the show, which is part of the reason it got. There is also like there is one that, episode that, that, that legacy with, comes with the yeah. good work that Peele's trying to do by yeah. elevating other. There is yeah. one episode that has a fucking Peele tier, like horror slasher villain type duo that chases. Oh my! Yes, there is a there is a character that's basically rules. just like like a, a reject from us, and I mean that's that in the so most good. like positive <laughs> way possible. It's so good. 
Um, anyway, so yeah, that's that's I, I'm going to choose Just King things, but I did want to you know talk about Lovecraft Country at least a little bit in relation because because I think like King's stories it is a collection of genre performances and, and and explorations and and it's at its best when it's when it is playing in that space and letting and letting the actors really sometimes chew the scenery in really overwrought ways uh, that still manage to be managed to be affecting in that way that pulp stories can be. So, all right, um, who's up? I'm because I'm also gotta go. Let's take a break, <laughs> and then yes, I'll take a break, and then yes, Gita will come back in on yours because of time constraints. So, BRB. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. All right, we're back. Gita, what is your waypoint of 2020? Shocker, everybody. It's Gossip Girl. (laughs) (laughs) 2020 is is the greatest hit. Yeah. uh, Rob, we know what yours is. You can't do this. Yeah, it's not in my handle. It's not in my handle. I don't go around being like, yeah, I don't don't end every show being like, yo, yo, I'm Rob the Mentalist Zachney. No. (laughs) Let's go. Also, one more part. It just... Demon souls what about and the you, Rob, that does like, not say mm. the mentalist when I look at you? I'm looking at you with your fucking glasses and your big bushy beard. I'm just like, that's the guy who watches the mentalist, baby. <laughs> I know that. God. Anyway, like Gossip yeah. Girl. Gossip Girl? Can you, okay, is real quick. For the audience like, that doesn't know shit about Gossip Girl, what is Gossip Girl? Okay. Just like, give me the, the three line. Give me the elevator pitch. Well, Gossip Girl. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck. Spoilers for this show that, that aired out. like two years ago. No, no, we're not bleeping no, out who Gossip Girl is. <laughs> okay, Cotto, we can discuss this later. I do think it makes the show better to know that twist because it just speaks to the absurdity of this and creativity of this writer's team. But uh, Gossip Girl is a show about the. Um, it's based on a series of young adult novels that I didn't read. And I actually didn't watch the show when I was in high school when it came out because I was like, boy, I shop at Hot Topic and I listen to hardcore punk. I'm too cool for Gossip Girl. Blah. I was wrong. I was exactly the <laughs> target audience for Gossip back Girl. back then. God, I was a fucking idiot when I was 16. Like, uh, if I could go back and punch myself in the face before I started smoking as a 16-year-old, I could. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> but... I uh, it is about uh, Serena Vander Woodson, the daughter of an extremely wit- rich divorcee, and Blair Waldorf, the incredibly type A daughter of a rich fashion designer, uh, and the their sort of orbit of friends in New York in the Upper West Side. They go to school at St. Constance, and uh, which is a fake prep school, and the uh, you know they date boys from the sisters of the the sibling school that is also a prep school for boys. Uh, but Bla- Serena has come back from a, a summer, uh, a year out of state, trying to get over 
some kind of trauma and she falls in love with Dan Humphreys, uh, a young aspiring writer who lives in Gasp, Brooklyn. So the, when this when this when these books were written, New York was a little bit different from when the show was actually set. And where the New York that the show is set in is so rooted in the way that that city was when I was 16 and when I first started mythologizing New York to myself. You know, like this is a, a time when like there's an episode where that just opens up with LCD sound system. You know, like it mm-hmm. completely buys into the way that New York was producing culture at the time, which at that time, New York had this incredible indie rock scene with the Yaya Yaz, the Strokes, LCD sound system. Um, this is all documented in this incredible book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which I just devoured. And there is something about this show that hits on that teenage experience so authentically that it becomes fascinating to watch. Like you're seeing... Um, a mythologizing of a New York that now doesn't really exist anymore, right? Like uh, Dan Dan Humphreys lives in Williamsburg and his dad owns a gallery on Bedford Avenue. And the show tries to tell you that this is a guy that doesn't have enough money to send his kid to Yale. You know, like that simply is not true anymore. <laughs> like, like if you own property on Bedford Avenue, you are a billionaire. Like that's it. Um, but that's not just that. But as you as I'm rewatching this show, I'm rewatching it because my partner, David, has never seen it before. And I what you start to understand is that this was a they captured lightning in a bottle. They had this incredible combination of very, very charming and talented actors and in a wildly creative writing team that was willing to just do anything as long as it would be fun and funny. Like uh, there's a current the current plot line we're at. Dan and Serena have broken up. They have an on again, off again thing. And they're broken up and she's getting into this artist guy that was, uh, had a solo exhibit at Dan's uh, dad's gallery. And she's talking about it to Blair. And Blair is like, Ugh, artists, you know, it all starts out great when they're in their blue period. <laughs> but soon it'll get into cubism and it'll be some other girl's eyes sticking out of her forehead. <laughs> Just- <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> An incredible line and the way that Leighton Meester delivers it is perfect. Like they they realized suddenly that they had Mina has thoughts. I love Gossip Girl. <laughs> Mina is <laughs> has very Blair Waldorf energy. I'm just gonna put that out there. Listen, I am like if there's anyone I relate to the most on that show, it's Blair Waldorf, an incredibly type A person who go gets absolutely sicko mode when things don't go her way. <laughs> I yeah sorry. Um, I know Rob also enjoys Gossip Girl because we are secretly the same person. But it's just I get so enthusiastic about shows like this where you like the screwball comedy dialogue. Just it, it is perfect. It's just perfect, delivered perfectly every time. So there's two things. One, I also didn't think I would like Gossip Girl as much as I did. Uh, but it turns out I just hadn't had the right depressive skid. Uh, to uh-huh. get into the show, uh, sure. where one night, like one night, I was out in LA, and I was like, I have no idea what sounds good, but I've got a couple pints of ice cream and ooh, gossip girl. Let's let's see what this is all about. And I was riveted, riveted yeah. because it is, it it is this. Um, there is a fully going for it energy to that entire series uh, that I enjoy, and is there from the start. Um, the other thing is that some of these characters and performances really are memorable. There is like Blair Waldorf is a fun character in the way that like 
Frasier remains a fun show in some ways. She is such a tryhard intellectual in some yes. ways. And <laughs> her interviews like, at Yale are so perfect, where she knows she's perfect on paper, but she has no ability to charm them because she just never thought it would matter. <laughs> Right. And she's got that wonderful like she she operates on the the performance operates on these on these two levels of like one. There is the the front that is Blair Waldorf. And then there is the growing panic as she's like, uh oh, the the mania is starting to show. Uh oh, the like mm-hmm. vindictive temper is starting to, to, to bust loose. Um, and it's it's fun watching these the these beats uh, go. Here here's the thing I can't quite. Okay, so this show became dominated by its shipping camps in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Like this is unlike most shows. Oh yeah, <laughs> unusual for television. This feel, I don't know. This feels like kind of like a foundational text of like where shipping begins to dominate the discourse of a show. I don't know if that's maybe retconning the history of the show's life and culture. At the time, was such a phenomenon that I know Vulture had a dedicated feature for every single episode called the Gossip Girl to Reality Index, where they just judge different things they do and say and places they go to in Gossip Girl based on how true to life to New York they are or, you know, how clever enough of a commentary they are about living in New York. Like, that was the level (laughs) where we were at, where, like, once a week you'd get together and talk about, oh, can you believe that they referenced that weird New York thing on Gossip Girl? this week everybody was doing this yeah it it seems like it was building on um i'd have to look up the dates but it, it feels like it was what sex in the city was for yeah. like an mm. older generation was yeah. two hours uh but here's the thing i can never quite forgive i will never like chuck bass and furthermore i will never you will never convince me that the relationship that built up between Dan Humphrey and Blair Waldorf was not the like correct arc for those characters that then they kind of pull the, the emergency break and whip the show into a, uh, a series of, (laughs) yeah, a series of really disastrous marriage knots, um, that like kind of taints the show. And I think it goes back to, Chuck Bass at the start in the pilot is represented as like an uber creep who commits multiple sexual assaults in the space of like 20 minutes. Yeah. He like tries to sexually assault Jenny Humphrey, a major character on the show. And like the rest of the characters later on that season, they got to be like, well, okay. Because they realize that Easter and Chuck have like, they have incredible chemistry and they want to explore that. And like, it's the same problem as Logan and Veronica Mars, right? Where in the first season, he's hosting bum fights. This guy's irredeemable. And the next season's, you know, as he becomes a love interest for Veronica, the realm of bad boyness that he can operate within becomes smaller and smaller and smaller because they have to make sure that you like him. Well, and the solution becomes very similar too, where it's like, okay, well, how do we forgive this guy? What if we give him a really bad dad? And what if his dad is a nightmare man? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. But like it is it is truly like, man, like how do you build sympathy for for Chuck? Uh, Well, his uh, (laughs) you know, his his dad is the Genghis Khan of the Upper East of the Lower East Side. So there's this great scene I just watched. Yeah. I mean, you're right in that that doesn't excuse any of the things that he does and it doesn't excuse the way he treats women, especially the way he talks about explicitly seeking out women who do not speak English to have sex with him. Uh, him Woof. being a 17-year-old boy. Um, Woof. Uh, 
like let's not forget so the the reason the show is called gossip girl i didn't explain this part because it like this meta level is like it it predicts the fucked up panopticon of the internet that we live in in a way that is bizarre and remarkable where they're they're in this show these upper west siders are always surveilled by a website called gossip girl which is the what it does is just report on the goings on of various teenagers in new york essentially it's like oh there's a gossip girl post about a party with a bunch of 15 year olds at it (laughs) uh don't do that (laughs) don't do it don't do that but Serena also. and Dan will be out on a date and you'll see someone in the background take a picture and you know, like later in the episode, that's going to show up on Gossip Girl. And this idea of like constantly being observed, like not having the barriers of of being actually famous, but experiencing a weird fucked up fame anyway. That is like a huge aspect of the show. And Gossip Girl is a character in the un- in universe voiced by... Speaking of Veronica Mars, Kristen Bell just doing her most like devious like voice of all time. Uh oh. <laughs> God, it looks it like so Lonely much. Boy got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> or something. Is this like- gonna be a three way or D day? <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Best line. Oh, amazing. So, but. The thing is, that becomes the mystery of the show, which isn't the focus at the start, but it becomes like, who is Gossip Girl? Which is not a question I'm really interested in at the start of the series, nor do I think the series is interested in it. Yeah, and the, the books, start. they never reveal it, by the way. She's just a gossip blogger. Yeah. You know? Like and crazy the, days and nights, basically. <laughs> and the series builds toward this reveal where it's like, we're going to find out who Gossip Girl is. And uh, I guess it's similar to the show I'm talking about. You kind of build this thing up where it's like there's no character who's going to really answer. Like, you know, the, the both, both make sense and also satisfy the omnipotence of this mm-hmm. or the omniscience of, of this character. People um, were really hoping it would be Dorota, um, the wonderful character of uh, that is a um, – uh, Blair's maid that is like the only adult that cares for the well-being of children in this show. <laughs> all the other adults, the the mm. secret twist of Gossip Girl is that uh, all the adults are way, way more ridiculous than the children to the point that when Wallace Shawn, by the way, Wallace Shawn guest stars right. for several episodes Let's in the show <laughs> and he plays against Leighton Meester and just like the, the he is the antithesis of everything that she is. And it's like a perfect rivalry, perfect rivalry. Um, but he said in an interview that someone linked to me on Twitter, uh, like, oh, the brilliance of Gossip Girl is like the the way that the adults are portrayed. It seems like very true to life to the point where I'll be acting in a scene. I'll be like, that seems familiar. Where did I see someone acting like that? Oh, yes. In reality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad that you've gotten a chance to revisit it this year. I feel like I feel like, like we're all we are all allowed in this in this year, especially to return to the thing that that sh- the things that have shaped us. For comfort. It's letting me see New York again, too, is the other thing. Like it it David and I, like on the weekends when we spend time together, usually we plan like trips out into Manhattan to go to a museum, go to Central Park and see actually see and experience the city. Like that's something that we like about living in New York, and it's one of the reasons why we've stayed. And um, when you have fred 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 friends who have decided that living in New York when everyone's working from home is just not worth it to them, but it is worth it to me and him to, for this idea that we'll get to experience culture again. 
Like the culture of New York is actually important to me, I've realized. And was watching them walk through Central Park, that sort of rainy, you know, reunion scene between Blair and Serena in Central Park, or watching um, Jenny Humphrey go to some kind of random dive bar in Williamsburg and the photography that's like in the style of the Cobra Snake just reminds me of what I found so incredible about New York when I was like under like going to un- underage drinking with my friends in uh, on St. Mark's when I was visiting, you know, friends from summer camp and stuff. Like that that is something that's priceless for me right now because I can't see any of these things even though I'm here. Like I would love to go and sit on the steps of Met. I would have lunch there. I would love to do that. And I will have to settle for watching Blair and Serena do it. And <laughs> I hope by the time I can sit on the steps of the Met, I will have as many fabulous headbands as she does. <laughs> That's a good goal to have. Thank you. Um. All right. Do we want to roll into the next one? Rob or Cotto? Also, I know Patrick and Gita, you, you are both on a time limit. So if you have to just duck out at some point, that is okay. Yeah, sounds good. Um. Rob, Cotto? Cotto. Okay. Okay. Sure. Um, I guess picking back up on the, the 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 theme set out by Patrick's on podcasts that are about other media. Um, this year I've started listening to uh, Great Gundam Project. Uh, you've heard both me and Austin talk about it, like mention mm-hmm. it multiple times on Waypoint Radio. Um, the disclosure, I guess. Now Austin is on it. I am on it now <laughs> for for like a few months. I'm doing this one show, yeah. this one series. Yeah, which Iron so to ex- no Iron Blood. This is in like six years, Rob. Okay. <laughs> this is the thing. This so is the you thing don't have to the, worry about it. Yeah, the great the great Gundam project is watching every piece ex- except I, I guess they they skipped a SD Gundams stuff no they didn't did, they didn't okay <laughs> just, they did I, that first sd run i promise <laughs> yeah I have to, you'll get there if you're starting from the yeah, top yeah I, I i just recently so i'll get to it but like they're they started at the very first uh gundam show uh known colloquially as double double 79 um because it came out also in 1979 and that's also like the in in, in universe year right um, also known colloquially as uh, well, no, in universe, yeah, in universe is double. It's Universal Century 0079. 0079. Yeah, uh, colloquially, I I love that we call it First Gundam. First, that's yeah. the fandom also calls it. Oh yeah, First Gundam. Right. <laughs> um, and they they've taken on watching two episodes a week, and just talking up just about those two episodes. And like they 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 mention multiple times they don't they don't watch ahead. Uh, one of the guests. Uh, sorry, I also should mention actually. Uh, M. Uh, at M being, I think it's M underscore being, M underscore on Twitter, being and then, on Twitter and, and then head falls head off. Falls off uh, yeah. are, are the the hosts, and they, um, yeah, they they've taken on this monumental task of watching fucking all of Gundam, which just really kind of um, like I've enjoyed bits and pieces of Gundam throughout my life. Like I was. Probably too young to really understand what was happening in Wing the first time it aired in the U.S., but I still liked the robots, and I had uh like poorly pieced together Gunpla from the time before I even knew what it was. Like my mother was like, "Oh yeah, he likes that show. 
and saw like a gunpla in a store and it turned out when it, she thought it was just like a, a an action figure and then i got it and it was like you know all in pieces and shit and i had to rip it out with i like i just like twisted it out with my hands um but like mm-hmm. so like a, a lot of um my exposure to it had only to the show had only been through what was available like on tv like i never got into it by the time i could even consider like purchasing things with my own money like i had already kind of past the phase where i was uh looking into like buying anime dvds and things like that so my experience of it is very was very limited but i always kind of enjoyed uh revisiting the the, the two the the one show that i really liked which was eighth eighth mess team which they hit this year um but what was really fascinating about the the kind of long view that they've taken is I feel like there are few, I mean, there's, there's a a couple other, but there are few franchises that have such a kind of long history that I think like the other thing I can think of is obviously like Star Wars, but even Star Wars, the way that it changes is not like, I feel like something about Gundam has this kind of like force from first Gundam through like so many of the different series that first Gundam is almost like what if you know how JJ Abrams made uh a new hope again yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what if it was not a sequel right right because the thing that happens in Gundam yeah. is I mean there is there are a bunch of AUs right? right um and so what ends up happening is a bunch of different creators kind of swoop in and do their own Sometimes it's stuff that takes place in that same universe, but it's yeah. often stuff that takes place in its own universe that reintegrate or reinterrogates some core idea from the original. Right. It's know, like an anthology of enormous novels. Yeah, totally just- right. So like we, so we just started Gundam X, um, which is one that like no one in the West really watches right. and never got a dub. Um, it's the only, I think it's the only use non UC show. To hmm, that's not true. But it only just recently got got released here, um, and like just uh, on Blu-rays too, like not on yeah, like a anywhere, couple years ago, just on Blu-rays, yeah. yeah. Um, and the premise for that show is what if the Earth, what if at the end of First Gundam, things went bad instead, and all of the giant space stations that orbit Earth fell onto Earth and turned it into a post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic wasteland which is also kind of a, uh, a kind of different version of some of the stuff that happens later in the main Gundam time- timeline. Kind of just like, what if what if the uh, antagonist uh, for, for much of that series had won at the end and done the thing that he'd set out to do? Sort of. I'm being very general here. Yeah. And having a different creator come in to kind of play in that space, Takata's point, is like so fascinating. Yeah. And, and it's different because like Star Wars doesn't, didn't mean to do that i guess now retrospectively because of the legends canon right it's happened um but like we don't have ip in that way where people come in and reinvent it over and over again and don't have to pay lip service to the past right right um Hmm. and the what's really interesting is just how well uh em and jackson both kind of pull on and i think continually remember to like it's easy it was easy enough for me to jump on at wing which is so far into the like they've been doing this for what two and a half three years now i forget the exact timing um that sounds right uh 
like every week, right? Like I'm, I'm jumping in kind of in the middle, but they bring with them, obviously this experience of having watched all of, from the beginning, the whole, like all, all the other uh, shows and they do a really good job of, of kind of leaning on that expertise at this point that even if you're like, if you like, like a lot of people, I feel like probably saw and jumped on at wing because that was like one of the first ones that came out here in the States on TV. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they actually are really, really smart about um, both understanding that it it was the first show for a lot of people and being able to weave the kind of like, well, these are the like, here are the things that if you're, if you haven't, if this was the one and only Gundam that you've watched, these are the callbacks and this is why this is important. And like, it's just shown a whole new light, obviously, on how I understood what Gundam as a franchise is and like what the types of um, the types of uh, kind of themes that it's really like going after, like kind of almost throughout all and like, and obviously to different degrees, right? Like certain series tackle uh, certain things better or worse, but it feels it's, it's kind of wild to just kind of see how, um, how kind of committed people making Gundam are to, to a kind of core set of uh, ideas and, you know, just like having this document of someone doing the work of going through all of it uh, is uh, really like, like shout outs to them for even taking it on in the first place. But it also like, um, it like, it's inspiring almost to think about doing something for that long. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, just like the thought of thinking like, oh, I will be doing this again, like continually for like the next decade or something is a staggering like like monumentally terrifying thing um and but like seeing them kind of work through this and like understanding that um you know slow progress is still progress uh you know it's like on that level helped me kind of get through this year of just like uh it's okay if it doesn't feel like you're doing anything right now um as long as you're uh doing the small bits right like it feels like i'm not making as much forward progress as i would like to in my life almost but it's okay to go at a slower pace than you're used to especially during a fucking pandemic and something about just just nice to have conversations about like what you're interested in which is like where like pop culture is sort of like paused in 2020 in a lot of ways but also pop culture conversations are always about what the new thing is like it's and if you're not, oftentimes yeah. you're watching things because, well, that's what your friends are watching. And it's nice to have conversations with your friends. And so the way you do that is you sign up for the new streaming service and you watch the thing and maybe you're just kind of into it. But like the King Cast was the same thing for me. It's like, yeah, like fucking, I do want to watch like every shitty Stephen yeah. King adaptation. But like, why would I do, th- why? <laughs> why would I do that? Like I have no, you know, maybe one night we'll sit around and it's like, you want to watch like Misery? Like, it's just on HBO Max. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. But like to have it, whereas the King cast, like, they're going to talk about every Stephen King adaptation. Yep. Like, like from start to start to finish and, and just keep doing that. And there'll always be new King movies and there will always be new Gundam shows. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's just cool. Like this is like, yes, I've always wanted to do this. And this gives me a reason to do it. And now there are familiar voices yes. that I can listen to every week talking about the thing that I'm into. That gives me the same sort of like, feeling I get when we all do a podcast and talk about new games that are coming out. But it's like, 
yo, but the, like the, the real grimy shit I want to talk about is like, <laughs> like Maximum Overdrive, like the movie that Stephen King directed that he doesn't remember yeah. doing because right. he was so high on drugs. And maybe David Lynch directed the best sequence of the movie because he was directing Blue Velvet at the time and he shared a producer with those two movies. And I want to hear people talk about that for 45 fucking yeah. minutes. And Feels like good. that rule. Yes. Let me, let and me, like, yeah, to build on that, two, two, two quick things. One is Gundam, Great Gundam Project is a $1 on Patreon. Yeah. Like that's that's an interesting model. Um, it is it is uh, you know, their base their base podcast is Abnormal Mapping, which is a game club. Again, they're not doing recent games for the most part. They do old games, and that is another way of like fuck trying to keep up with the release schedule. I'm going to talk about the shit I really want to talk about, which I think their next game is Suikoden. So that's Damn. exciting. Um, <laughs> a very uh, active franchise. <laughs> a very active. Well, didn't they just? Didn't, isn't there some sort of Suikoden like that team is getting together to do something else? Anyway, I believe they did a Kickstarter. Right? I believe yeah, they right. did. I think yeah. That is actually um, true. Um, but the other half of this, the other thing I wanted to say is like. There is inside of that inside, you know, adjacent to abnormal mapping and great Gundam project. There are a bunch of other podcasts by friends of, of that show, like export audio, or there is a, um, there is, Oh God, why am I blanking on there on the name? There's another mecha podcast that is literally just like 20 minutes of listening to people talk about a specific mech. Yeah. It's just like, hey, let's talk about this one mech, right? right. Um, and inside of, inside of not just the Abnormal Mapping Network, but like across that fandom are a bunch of people making shows for each other. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I think if you look at the, the network of people we know who make podcasts, that you can draw similar lines there. But I, I, want to, I want to just like recommend that, People try this not because I think everything should be content and should be, you know, consumable for for each other or something, um, but because sometimes it's nice to have an excuse to go through something and have a conversation about a movie or about a book or about whatever it is. And it's why I do a horror podcast with my wife. I, right. Nobody listens no one to listens it. To I mean, like a couple thousand people listen to it because they're fans of me, but like, I don't do it for them. You're not I mean, making you know, money it's on nice. podcast. I'm glad you enjoy it. Like, yes, we don't, right. But also, but like, but I also, do that because right, I want an I excuse to have a... I do want to say you can make it just for your friends. You can make it for the 50 people who are going to listen and they will like it because they want to hear your voice and they want to be there for like when you have a funny idea about a Stephen King book. Not that not that I think Just King Things is only for 50 people. It's a very it's successful. They have a Patreon. It's going well. But you know (laughs) what I mean? Like that style of like I want some creating creation does not necessarily mean creation for a marketplace or creation for a, uh, you know, a tr- trying to make it in the podcast industry. I think there is a lot of value in just like, hey, let's have a conversation and record it. That would be fun. It'll keep us on track and we're, we're going to put it out there and, and we'll see who listens to it. But mostly our 100 friends might, from that Discord server <laughs> we're in might listen to it and that would be fun. And like I, I definitely think that that's a, that's a space that people should should explore whether they like it or, you know, or not. You know, it, it's not super dissimilar to writing poetry or writing fanfic or writing stuff that is like I don't – this is not about being marketable. It's about having fun and producing stuff for our community to enjoy together. And that can be um, – that, that is an aspect of this stuff that I think is is under – it's super it's, – it's fairly it, – uh, it's fairly affordable to get a microphone now. You don't need a big expensive setup. You can get a, a $30 USB mic and do a, and do a podcast recording. Uh, using free software uh, on your computer, um, and that's and that's that's kind of where we're at now. And I, I super 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 just want to recommend that. Yeah. I, anyway, um, all of this to say also to definitely want to mention just that there, um, apart from like the kind of structural, just like 
inspiring way that uh, I fell into the show. Like I do think Em and Jackson have very kind of uh, sharp critique of the media that they're consuming. I like. Um, I think basically you should go listen to any of the podcasts that Austin just mentioned that they're also on like abnormal mapping or I think repertory, uh, repertory screenings, screenings yeah. uh, which is a film podcast that they do. Yeah. They're fantastic. They're great. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been my, my year catching up with, with Gundam. Thank you for joining the Gundam <laughs> fandom. Kato. Yeah. We are <laughs> thrilled to have you. Um, very excited for what's, what's coming up in the future of this show. We're about to get into one of my favorite series so after after this one right but yeah excited um, all right on that note i am gonna dip out but lovely i really wish i could be here to hear about the mentalist rob why don't you just (laughs) talk to me about the mentalist personally later (laughs) i will make the case thank you rob will make as austin suggests a separate personal podcast (laughs) just for gita please All right. See you guys later. Bye. 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 Have a good holiday. You too. All right. So now I got no place to be (laughs) until I have my year end meeting at two. Mods mods aren't looking. Most mentalist logs on. Patrick's got to go away too. At some point. Yeah, yeah, I'm leaving in minutes. I want to hear the the initial pitch and then I'll I'll let you. uh, All right. Then I will just get into it. Yeah. But you know it's so tough to talk about the mentalist because it contains multitudes. It really like, does. I can give you a pitch, Patrick, but I can't really like in the few minutes you have to spend with us. I don't think I can do justice to the sweep, the grandeur that is the mentalist. Now you might be thinking, Rob, come on! Like the mentalist is a CBS procedural uh, that people's parents watched. Um, mm-hmm. That's not like how can how can you be bringing that to the table? What's what case can you possibly make for it? And Patrick, I was once like you. Um, and if you're thinking about getting into the Mentalist, and you're thinking, well, when will I get it? Uh, it is one of those slow burn things where you might not get it uh, for like 12 hours into the series. Uh, you might just have oh, to wait through classic that. Classic Final Fantasy. Uh, what was that 13? 13. Like, <laughs> we got to get 45 hours, hours in, yeah, and then uh-huh. suddenly it gets good. Yeah. But I actually, but I, but actually, I think the series started to pay off for me, uh, you know, well, well before then. So to give you the setup, and uh, well, the setup, the setup for the setup is that I think two <laughs> two years ago, Austin made the case for this show on this podcast, and I was like, that sounds like bullshit. Like Austin, I like no no way is that show good. And <laughs> Austin made a case, and I was like, cool. Uh, I'll watch that never, but it turns out that like, sometimes you just need the disposable, like, you know, candy. And that's how I got into the mentalist, uh, you know, so I could just throw on, uh, while I had lunch and, and not think about, and it turns out like it does develop into quite a bit more than that. And here's the weird thing. I would argue it's mediocrity at the start it's it's sheer averageness as a cbs like case of the week procedural is what enables it to become a great show like i think it is only able to pull off some of its tricks because you would never see it coming the way you would on like true detective wants so hard to be a prestigious piece of television it wants so hard to be like uh, a, a sophisticated and insightful piece of detective fiction about America that like to a degree, any twist it throws at you, you're kind of like, yeah, I, yeah, 
I could feel that one, that one coming. The Mentalist, things come out of nowhere on The Mentalist. Uh, and that's what, what makes it cool. So the setup at the start is that uh, this FBI consultant, the CBI, sorry, CBI consultant, Patrick what? Jane. Excuse me? You yes, they even make mm. a joke out of this. They're they are members of the California Bureau of Investigation, the oh, the right. California uh, equivalent of the FBI. Turns out a real organization. Huh. Oh, I was gonna say, is this like is is part of the surprise? It is later revealed that in like the meta narrative, the world building of the Mentalist, yeah. like we have split into a civil war has occurred, and California has <laughs> had to establish its own bureau. You know? To a degree, uh, this is this is very much about like an alternate history of California, or at least uh, one with with the uh, names changed. But yes, this thing becomes very much about like California history and, and California mythology. But it opens on uh, this dude Patrick Jane, uh, played by Simon Baker, is an ex con artist psychic um who basically he started to like he sort of gave in to hubris like his con was so successful that he was moving into sort of a tv psychic role like he was a guy who would like have his own show he would appear on he would appear on cable and do like psychic readings and it would really high on his own supply at this point i want it to be revealed six seasons in that he's he actually is a latent psychic and has to grapple with the fact that he can read uh, people's minds. I he's think like a Don Edwards, right? Like he's not not a not the politician, the other the psychic one, right? Was that his name? Was that guy's name? Don I Edwards? can't remember. I I can't remember. I know who you're talking about. I cannot remember his name. Big forehead, John Edward. Apparently, just Edward. Okay. Um, way more charisma than John Edwards, though. <laughs> yeah, and so he, like at his height apparently decided to involve himself in a police investigation of this long running uh, series of like psychosexual murders committed by this serial killer, Red John. And he decides he's going to wade in there and involve himself in the investigation in part just for his, to inflate his own notoriety. And he makes some statements about Red John. He, he does a does a reading, and he sort of uh, says basically he can he can read what sort of person Red John is. He, he knows who he he knows him, but he doesn't know him. And Red John kills his family, and this all happens before the series opens. But that sort of redirects his life, and his quest becomes finding Red John. And part of that is he becomes a consultant using his skills as a cold read psychic to solve crimes for the CBI. And it's a total like you've seen a million shows like this. He's a guy with, uh, you know, ridiculous abilities. He is paired with a tough, no nonsense uh, partner who is uh, like very much the uh, Scully uh, to his Fox Mulder. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And right. at the end, he sort of breaks all the rules, and her job is to disapprove but put up with it a million shows being a useful yeah Uh uh-huh so here's where i think it starts to change first in the the thing that got me in the first season is that this is actually a profoundly bleak show and you don't notice it at first because simon baker is such a engaging performer and he plays patrick jane as a very sort of high-spirited, almost childish um, prankster in some ways. 
But the first season, there, there's kind of two things looming over this. One is that he's a he is a cold read con artist, and what that has taught him is that people are terrible, and not in not in the exhausting like House MD misanthropy way, mm. but like Patrick Jane's character is someone who his worst expectations for people will always be confirmed. His his belief about like how somebody might secretly be shitty is inevitably correct and true. And he just sort of goes through life knowing that no matter how people seem to be, there's rot underneath it that he, that he can see. And that is, that is who they are uh, at, at their base. The other thing hanging over this is he's trying to work out whether or not he's on a quest for revenge or justice, or if those are the same things. And, there's kind of a moral jeopardy uh, with, with Patrick Jane's character of, you know, if he finds this guy, like, is he just going to murder red John? Is he, and, and what is he willing to, to set up uh, that revenge? What is he willing to sacrifice? Who is he willing to screw over in order to get it? And a lot of the early seasons hinge on this question of like him examining the issue of revenge and just, and the justifications murders offer for, violently writing the slice they think were done to them. Um, and he genuinely, like it's, it's a tough balancing act. Simon Baker plays Patrick Jane as a guy you could see convincingly as legitimately going either way, legitimately saying, eh, I want to move on in my life. I want to have a life. Um, or you could see him as becoming kind of like Hugh Jackman, in the prestige in some ways, right? We're just totally consumed, um, totally yeah. like maniacally focused. On, on this quest for vengeance to the point where there'll be nothing left of him at the end. And I'd say early in the series, like it gets these themes out and I ended up being pretty bought in to this character and his, his moral arc. Um, that's the opening pitch of the show. The other thing that I think it unfolds into later, uh, Patrick is that, it starts to see it, it, it starts me. out as like every case of the week is just its own isolated thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is building a mythology of its world. Like everything okay. is connected. And like four seasons in, you'll start to realize, like, oh fuck. Like all those throwaway cases, <laughs> all those little guest spots, they're all coming back into play. And now that like there's this entire fictional California that this series has built one county at a time that is all being brought in for the end game. And even like, so, so I guess like the, the way to talk about that specifically, there's two things there. One is like, it's a cool neo-noir where one of my favorite things that happens in detective fiction is the interplay between different layers of, of uh, kind of institutions. There's the local, there's like the, there's like the cop, the local beat cop or the sheriff. There's the highway patrol. There's the state like investigators. There's the feds, and the way that those those levels all interact with each other is is interesting. The fact that the show fills each of those roles with recurring characters is interesting because you'll go like a season and you're like, wait a second, I know this guy. Where did this guy come from? Or the same way that it interacts with other institutions, like there is a very clear Scientology uh, stand-in in this show uh, that is run by God. What is the actor's name? Why am I blanking on his McDowell. name? Malcolm McDowell, uh, who is fantastic in the in the role of this like 
is he a cult leader? Is he a is he a corrupt businessman? Is he does he believe his own hype? What's going on there? But the other thing that the show does, and that I think separates it from a lot of TV procedurals, is that overarching story of Red John, the serial killer. You never know if you're watching a Red John episode or not. Um, every episode could tie into the big mystery because the big mystery is abstract enough or is general enough that you don't necessarily need it to be a very special episode. You don't know when suddenly someone is going to turn the corner and like, oh shit, is this motherfucker Red John <laughs> like toying with our protagonist? Or is this going to produce some sort of evidence that's going to long-term connect to the case? Or is this body that we found secretly going to be another victim? Um, and because every episode can end and wrap up the way a TV procedural has to, where the case of the week is closed, but because the and yet at the same time address that bigger investigation, it it ends up walking the line between episodic and serialized storytelling so so well, um, in a way that I don't think any other you know primetime network drama has done for me. And I've watched plenty of schlocky bad cop shows. You know, I've watched. Plenty of CSI. I've watched, you know, my fair share of Law and Order and the various Law and Orders, and none of them get there. And also, I don't give a fuck about any of those characters the way I end up caring about about uh, the the leads here, who are all so well acted. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like Rob, you and I have talked about this show a lot this year. Um, in fact, I guess we started last year. Is when you was when. I had been recommending you watch this show for years. <laughs> I've been saying, you know what, Rob? I think you might really like this show. I, you know, uh, a friend and I watched it years ago. It's like super important to me for for very sentimental reasons. Um, and uh, it is it is a funny, weird show to care about because it is a cop procedural. Um, now, it's it's a cop procedural that I think fundamentally distrusts the institutions of power because it sees them shot through with corruption and personal interest. Um, uh, I don't think that it's a particularly critical or like it's not like a secret leftist show it's not like a takedown of the police um but it is one that distrusts power um it distrusts the the sort of the sort of uh centralization uh, of power and the ways in which institutions become ossified in in their structures such that they can uh uh you know do harm to people and cover up harm that's being done um and uh all of that filtered through this kind of neo-noir California, you know, sun-soaked, sun-scorched sun in some cases, um, uh, storytelling is just it, – it, it's a phenomenal show that never got the audience. It, it, I think it deserved because the audience it was being served to was not – I don't know. Maybe it's unfair to say they weren't engaging with it in this way, but like I didn't at the time hear that from – the CBS audience that like, oh, wow, the mentalist is really something special. Um, and, and from our age group, what I got again and again was like, oh, it's just it's just biting psych. And psych is such a different show, despite being similar in the premise of there being a detective who is has, you know, is a fake psychic. Right. Um, it's a comedy and it's and it's, you know, it, it has its its kind of dramatic beats. Um, but it it's so, so fundamentally different. And the mentalist is, has always just been more my speed. Maybe it's because I'm an old man at heart. <laughs> um, but but I think it's playing in a, in a playground that I really love. Yeah, this this is a show that can find such incredible gears when it wants to. Um, there's an episode. It's not a hard clip to find. Uh, it's a it's a clip that I think sometimes just makes the rounds because it, it resonated with a lot of people. But in the early seasons, there's a coroner who Jane just relentlessly gives shit to. Um, 
and just is a is an asshole to him in the way that Jane is an asshole to everybody. And there's an mm-hmm. episode where real early on he sort of susses out um, that this character has terminal cancer and is at the precipice before the the nosedive really happens. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's probably living his last good days. And over the course of this one case, they completely change their relationship between these two characters, but in a way that feels utterly organic and gets these two characters who like one, you didn't know well at all. And two, you've just never seen this, this side of like reckon seriously with the inevitability of death and how you extend compassion to another person. And it's like, it comes out of nowhere when when you encounter this, but this is kind of what the show can pull off. And it it culminates in the case is solved. And you just see these two characters like almost in a, there's a short play almost at the end of this episode as this one character is asking for assistance, um, ending his own life on his terms and whether, whether or not Jane is going to help with that. Um, and the fact that these moments land so consistently that it turns out that like Simon Baker has this, not just range as a performer, but that Jane is written in such a way that he's this sort of protean figure where he can become different people. If his sensibilities or sympathies are engaged in a different way that sort of cracks through his armor. And it's always in a way that's convincing um, because it doesn't happen that often. This is not a show that goes the well of, you know, Jane, he's just a big softy at heart. Yeah. I've watched, yeah. I watched, you know, six seasons of the show. I'm, I'm about to finish it. I think this guy still might be a prick in yeah. a lot of ways. But and again, not in a way that I think is clearly mappable to the Sherlock Holmes. I mean, like it, it's mappable because the, the children of Sherlock Holmes are vast in many. Um, but it does. I think, again, separating him from like house is an important distinction. Yes. Uh, he's not he's. It is it is not simply that he puts on this sharp exterior. It's that he may really believe there is nothing underneath it all. Um, part of being a, a pretend psychic is for him having a direct connection to reality in a way that makes him seem to believe that it's all performance all the time from everyone, including him, that there is that there is no, you know, true nature of it all. And then kind of luxuriating in that because of the way it frees him up to make decisions that are often very hedonistic, uh, despite his overarching belief in, you know, the value of humanity or something, right? But 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 that that his his interest in humanity is selfish. It's that he happens to like people. It's that he <laughs> happens to be entertained by people. I don't think it's because he believes in some like, at the end of the day, human life is fundamentally truly valuable. It's that he believes nothing is except for what we what we decide to give value to. And he's decided that like his relationships are important and that people shouldn't be allowed to in- intervene in such a way to to remove the joy of others, um, except for in cases when it's him making that decision. Right. Um, I, I, without getting into specifics, the climax of this show does not come in the final season. It comes in the second final, the penultimate season. Uh, it happens quickly and sh- shockingly 
Um, and it's played in a way that I could not have predicted because it is it has been the 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 question of like what happens when he meets Red John is something that you know hangs over the entire series um to the degree that I think Rob you messaged me months ago and like how could they ever stick this landing um yeah i mean and yeah this the other thing because and like i am convinced you will never convince me they did not write themselves into a trap like you will <laughs> oh, yeah. never convince me they did not sit down and realize we fucked ourselves because yeah. The Red John monster they create is omnipotent in a way that I can't, like, I, like, I think I, I texted you repeatedly, Austin. I was like, I don't think they can. There's nobody. There's no one. It, you could resurrect Orson Welles himself to do the Harry <laughs> Lime thing and be like, yeah. uh, you know, I will be Red John. Nobody was going to sell well, that. And part of the reasons they already did that yes. and and wasted, not wasted it, but it ends up being a beat on the path not being the real guy they already right? played against expectations once where it's like well you would never right. like where he's so pedestrian that you know you'd never buy him as this they play that card and so that's that's out of the deck that's the the, the bradley whitford yeah uh, episode episode which is fantastic oh and such a good uh, run up to it what a mis- yes yes i'm sure we've already talked about bradley whitford on the sorkin cast that i missed uh, I'm sure, I'm sure Whitford came up once already, oh, but just, let me tell you, just a master of being a prick. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Um, great sequence. But so I was like, I don't think they can, I don't think they can stick this landing. I don't see any way that they can ever really pull this off. And what's kind of shocking is they begin to figure out some conceits that make the character like to give you a little taste. Red John at one point traumatizes a character so badly she experiences a dissociative break that basically like severs her connection with reality unless she's under hypnosis, at which point it's like you see the real person, but she's speaking to you beyond the grave. She's alive, but she's dead. Like Red John can do that. And I'm like, okay, come the fuck on. Like, no, no. Like, there's no way he's this kind of like, uh, like incredible Svengali character who's like, uh-huh. I'm going to, I'm going to make you totally twisted. It will. Um, <laughs> he can jokeify anyone. He can jokeify anyone. Yeah. He has to be stopped. Yeah. Libsyn, we have to stop before he jokerifies again. But the real question is, how could anybody have this kind of power? How can anybody have this kind of information at their fingertips to get inside anybody's hand, anybody's head? And the show finds really satisfying answers for that. And the other part of it is, you know, Austin, you mentioned it doesn't build the end of the show is not the end of this arc. And I think this is the other thing. You stumble into the end game between Jane and Red John in much the way that Red John and Jane stumble into each other in various episodes where the hunt is kind of stuck in stuck in neutral for a while. There's a lot of dead ends, false leads. And then suddenly there's just, you know, to, to borrow a, a Holmesism, like the game is afoot. Like they are mm. closing in. The the number of uh you know people it could be begins to drop precipitously. And suddenly it's like, no, it's it's gotta be like we have a list of suspects now, which we never had before. And the the show just accelerates and it doesn't respect the need to resolve this in the series finale. The moment has arrived, and this show, unlike so many others has the wit to realize you just have to go now. Like you can, you'll, you'll wrap the show up some other time. This arcs moment has arrived. 
and it just goes for it. And it's like the opposite of the Laura Palmer reveal, the Laura Palmer's <laughs> killer reveal in, in Twin Peaks season two, where the show that show suffers so greatly from that arc ending when it does. Um, and I'm not saying that the final episodes of of The Mentalist are as strong as what came before, um, but it understood where the energy was at in the room. And that you have to hit your closing material now, and and the rest of it can be denouement, and that yeah. that's fine. Like, but it is climax time. It is time to hit to, to pull the trigger on this and to step forward and like and pull you know show put all the cards on the table, let the hand play out, and and uh, ride that energy. And it does such a fucking good job of it. I truly recommend it. I think it's streaming some places, right? It's uh, still on Amazon Prime. Uh, so if you if you have a Prime membership and are compromised in that way the way so many of us are because it's convenient and uh almost unavoidable um hey free free mentalist (laughs) um i also would be remiss if i didn't shout out like the casting in the show is incredible the guest actors they rotate through here is just like an all-star run of character actors from Mm. tv Um, like every, like everybody, the, the guests, all the guests from, um, all the, all the bit players in justified cycle through here at some point, like the, there's just a season where they're like, well, we've got, we're working with the justified casting agent. So we'll just go <laughs> through that. Um, but I think that also is doubly true of the supporting cast. Um, in particular, um, like, like there, he, there's a detective that I think uh, Austin, you and I both have kind of a crush on. Of like, I'd watch a show about this dude, uh, Tim Kang's Agent about, Cho. Yeah, Cho is so good. <laughs> Tim Kang just absolutely crushes it. Um, Cho is man. He is just you know, like I, I think the closest character in games <laughs> is is uh, Kim uh, Kutsaragi <laughs> from from um, uh, Disco Elysium. Just like the greatest deadpan just uh, it is it is hard to oversell how effective he is at being the character who is supposed to be dry um and yet giving you a little bit more than just the straight man in a scene um he is hilarious he he like is the only other actor i think in the show who can who can kind of stand in a scene uh, with um, Simon Baker and and not feel overshadowed by his presence, um, and the two of them bounce off of each other so well. They're not even like they're not partners in the in like the cop sense. They're just part of the same team. But any but any time the two of them are able to bounce off of each other brings an episode up so 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 much. Yeah, uh, Kang's an incredible performance, and uh, Robin Tunney's tr- uh, Teresa Lisbon is that is a role that is often thankless. She's great too. Yes, absolutely. Um, and she manages to do great things with it um like part of, there is there is an art to being someone whose job is to have incredible and dynamic chemistry uh with somebody and to ground them and their actions in a sense of because jane is the 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 danger with jane is that you know austin you alluded to it he's a character for whom a lot there isn't there is no real there is no true authentic self there's no authentic emotional connection there's just kind of amusement that there has to be one character to convincingly break through that and not just in a way that feels like, ah, this is the love interest they needed to write in. The mentalist doesn't play that love interest angle at all. Um, if they can avoid it for like six seasons, 
Um, they allude to it, but that is not the primary lens through which this relationship is shot. So it needs to become one of like Teresa Lisbon is somebody who brings a lot of sincerity and warmth that uh, Jane does not. And that, yeah. that that interaction has to be interesting and it has to cause conflict and challenge both characters and performers. And they bring that out in each other. Um, the show like, you know, I described it, you know, I think somebody wrote in ages ago that there's this entire genre of um, detect like, uh, you know, boy genius and detective ladies, lady skeptic. Like that's mm-hmm. that's a genre. Um, I think if Robin Tunney doesn't bring the goods and if Simon Baker doesn't handle the material well, this show would end up in that same um, neighborhood and it doesn't because they they nail it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, I again, I hope people give it a shot because it's so it is there is a there is a a type of of TV cop show that I think can be especially okay, so I, I guess where I want to start with this is like this is a show that aired from tw- 2008 until 2015. Right. This is an Obama era show and captures a lot of that of that period in time uh, in its in its topics um, in its hand. And I don't mean in a particularly critical way necessarily. I mean, in a reflect in the way in which when you create culture, culture can be a mirror right to to the reality of, of its productions and to a reality of the world and context that it's been made in. Um, and and I think that there is I'm actually just talking about this with Emma Jackson over on the Great Gundam <laughs> Project because our backup show this season is Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex uh, second gig, which is a fantastic uh, another fantastic cop show, uh, though that one I think revels more specifically in the ways in which the characters are caught up in being purveyors of state violence um, in a way that is nevertheless, um, you know, revealing of 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 that relationship. But I think here in The Mentalist, there is such a snapshot of what it meant to live in the Obama era uh, and and those sorts of stories we were comfortable telling and the anxieties that rode just underneath them, right? Because it is a show that does not trust the police and yet can't see beyond them um, until this break happens where suddenly – we're suddenly briefly it does without getting again without getting into too many specifics but like the theme changes after the climax the musical the way the music hits at the beginning shifts a little bit the camera where the camera is in the world shifts a little bit we get this brief instance of being outside of the realm of california policing agencies we see what life outside of um, the american state infrastructure could look like um and you know, I guess without giving away too much, like you get pulled back into it. The gravity is too great. Um, and and your life gets reshaped again around what justice is supposed to you're told justice is supposed to look like. Uh, and, I, and I think that aspect of the show has made it stand up for me in a way that I didn't anticipate because I was watching the final few seasons, the final two seasons, I want to say maybe I watched as it was coming out because it ends in, in 2015. And I was back in the States by the time I think it wrapped up. Um, or, or okay, I wasn't because it ended in February. I was about to move back to the states, um, uh, and so and so yeah, like there is a degree to which I feel like, despite not having very many episodes that are like this week, we're tackling 
you know, racial injustice. Like, it's not that show. It nevertheless reflects, I think, a lot of what was front of mind in that era. And it does so with a bunch of with a bunch of uh, actors who can play with that material um, and who can play in that genre space in a way that I think has gone under-remarked on, given how, how adept they are at it. Great show. Everyone should Fantastic watch it. Fantastic show. And I love that I've been able to relive it uh, vicariously through <laughs> Dude, you. Dude, I'm so bummed that I only get to watch this for the first time once in some ways. Because it's been such a, like, I've loved keeping yeah. company with these characters. And yep, I loved totally. being surprised by like, oh shit, we're going here. This is the destination. This is awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. And the way that this show just sort of blindsided me in places uh, I don't believe in spoiler culture uh, and, and to a degree, I don't think we've, we've spoiled. I do not think we've spoiled the show, but I think there's no. some things that this show, uh, you know, this is, I sort of let off with this, but I'll loop back to it. The show lies in wait where you're like, this thing is just familiar and comfortable. It's, it's, it's not going to, it's not doing nothing. Uh, and then, do you know, did you know, did you know, did you know that Tim Kang was in prey? What? What? Yeah, he's Morgan Yu. He's the male Morgan Yu voice. Oh shit! Wow. Yeah, sorry. This oh is, man, they they cast they, they cast both the U's so well in that game. Yeah, who's the who is the femme oh, God, the, Yu? The guy who's uh, sorry. Uh, I meant um the the brother. Oh, the other the the older brother. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yes, yeah. That guy's a piece of shit. <laughs> Love him. He's great. <laughs> Fantastic. Benedict Wong, right? Uh, just. That's correct. Always, br- yes. always yes. bringing the goods. Um, yes. Another reason I'm to bring back deadly class, you cowards. Uh, give Benedict Wong <laughs> his, his, his star turn that he deserves. Uh, anyway, great show. Um, glad you chose it as your as your as your waypoint. Listen, again, I said this earlier, but like the year that you, you turned into a Souls fan and a Mentalist fan <laughs> is a great gift t- to me. It means a lot. Uh, you know, it means I'm suggestible, Austin. <laughs> it means a lot. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, it, it has been like I said. It truly has been a joy for me to share this stuff with you because uh, it's, it's exactly the sort of thing. Which is like, no offense to to the Gundam fans out there, but like Kato, you and I could talk, could have talked Gundam any time, and it wouldn't have surprised me right. that you would have liked Gundam. You know, and I would have had other people. If you didn't like Gundam, I would have found other people to talk to about Gundam. Right? right. Um, it has a huge fandom. It's like you said, it's been around for forty years. That produces a certain 50 years, 50, 50, 50 <laughs> years. Jesus Christ. 50, Good God. Five zero years. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and and it, because of that, it produces a certain amount of uh, – wait, is that true? I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Am I wrong? Uh, one second. Hold on. I was right the first time. 40, 40 years. Yeah. 40 years. 40 years. We're fine. I was like, wait a second. That can't be right. Um, the And so like to some degree, that's already – um, that aspect of of the fandom is is met, but the Mentalist is a show that I said you know it means a lot to me, but that doesn't mean that I think that it's I can't post Mentalist memes on the internet and get a fucking response. Like if I go if I go on oh, to Google, please Mentalist start posting memes, Mentalist like, I, memes I, I that no one will get. Exactly. Like I'm looking at these memes now, and I don't think that this this shit doesn't land. This stuff doesn't land on for a wide audience. Um, uh-huh. you know, I it's. Uh, unfortunately, but I will start posting these because this is this is what we're gonna do now. Great. My face uh, when spitefully yes. making tea. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Um, so yeah, so, so, so Rob, I've really appreciated it. It's been very fun to watch you go on this journey. Um, <laughs> this is a good one. This is, someone says, how could you be so cold? And then Jane looks at the camera and smiles and says, by practicing. Good. <laughs> Great. And that has a wide reaching appeal, I think. Oh, I love this I show. hope so. He's just also extremely attractive and people are sleeping on it. So I mean, that's the other half of this. It's kind of a heartbreaker is like, I don't know that anyone from this show has hit in the way that they deserve. Um, it's such a TV show in a way we don't talk about TV shows anymore. This is not prestige television. No one here was launching their career into stardom. This is like a TV procedural ass TV procedural with all of the baggage attached to it, you know? You know, Gita and I were talking about, um, we watched that West Wing special on HBO. Right. And it was just like, mm-hmm. it, it struck us both how amazingly these char- these actors were able to inhabit these characters again after, you know, more than a decade uh, without right. without playing them. But I think The Mentalist is, provides a similar sort of charm, like long form serialized television Actors develop relationships with characters that you do not see in movies at all. Uh, mm-hmm. But even these shorter run um, TV series, like there is something that becomes possible when you've watched, uh, you know, Simon Baker inhabit Patrick Jane for 60, 70 episodes. And you know this character so well that it allows shadings of the character, like levels of nuance become possible in a series like this that you just you it's it's hard to describe you know when you see it because you're watching a show and you're like i don't like i just read this character in a way that i read a member of my family like that other Mm -hmm. people wouldn't have picked up this flicker but at this point i've been watching this person play this character so long and they are so in touch with this character that all these little reactions all these little like stray thoughts and feelings about you know the scene in front of them all of that gets communicated in a way that I think tends to go by in shorter form um, films and and uh, series, and so I think this this is uh, you know some of the other I think this is one of the other challenges for why this is so hard to appreciate. I think if you turn on a random episode of The Mentalist, you don't see what makes these performances so special. It is in the body of work that you realize like. These like some of these some of these performers never put a foot never put a foot wrong, and keep adding shades to their characters long after you could have said tools down. This is who this character is. We're done. So I just I just looked into who was the showrunner on this and the develop kind of the person who developed the show, and I only just now seeing what else he's done. Bruno Heller before this did Rome for HBO. Huh. Uh, and then after this, Rob did Gotham. Oh no! And then Pennyworth, the Alfred origin story show. Wait, did that air? Which did, did Pennyworth happen? That, and that has apparently aired for for at least a season. Season two starts is out now. Season two is out as we're talking. Wow. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll be most of the way out by the time this this. I'm airs. sorry, I did not like Gotham. <laughs> I bounced off. Of I tried. Hard. I know I have friends who really like it. I tried too. Apparently, this Pennyworth series is unrelated to Gotham somehow. Huh. Uh, or at least that's what it says. Who I, who knows, right? I'll check it out. Um, but you know, 
Pennyworth explores the early life of the titular Wayne family butler, Alfred Pennyworth, a former British British SAS soldier who is forming his own security company in an alternate London, which combines aspects of London in the 1950s and 60s with invented uh, events and practices, for example, televised public executions. Alfred what? becomes the target of the Raven Society, a group conspiring to take over the British government, and begins working against them alongside American agents of the No Name League, Thomas Wayne and Martha Kane, the future parents of Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Uh, I don't know I don't about know. that. You should watch that. You should watch that and tell me how that is. Yeah, well, it's on Epic, so no. Well. <laughs> Bodied. Um. All right. On that note, we should wrap this up. Thank you all for joining us for this holiday uh, festive bonanza. I almost said finanza. That's not a thing. Festive finanza. A festive finanza. <laughs> Uh, our own word we've invented it finance is how you get a loan for your lexus december to remember uh clearance event we're having finanza we're having (laughs) um i hope everyone has had had good holidays has had safe holidays uh has a, a good new year we will be back in 2021 which don't believe the hype i'm not ready for it to be good i'm ready for it to be better but better but like you know one one hundredth of one is more than zero. It doesn't mean it's good. You know what I mean? So we'll we'll see how it goes. We'll be here with you all year. Uh, I, I hope. I don't know. I guess we can't make any promises. Shit. What's 2021 going to look like? I said 2020 has got to be better than 2019. What? That's what I said. I was fucking wrong. So I'm not making oh, any predictions anymore. Fuck. We'll do our best. We'll be there with you. To Patrick who left. Try. To Gita who left. <laughs> We're going to try. Exactly. Exactly. Um, thank you for joining us to Patrick and Gita, who've now gone on to enjoy their holidays. And that's actually not true. I think it's I think it's meetings day for people who are working full time advice still. I don't have to do that shit. Thank God. Meetings. Y'all got meetings. No, won't. That's not true. Actually, I think I have a meeting. Fuck. I think I have to go to a meeting right now. But I can't. Except I can't because I don't have email login. Shit. All right, everybody. That's it. We're going to end this right now. I hope everyone has a good holiday thank you rob thank you uh kato thank you mellow for letting us use the track uh waypoint holiday song uh until new until the new year as always fuck capitalism go home you're sending your holiday love and cheer bye When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What I'm regularly told. You know, it's, is it, you know, we'll be doing it at, uh, you know, nine o'clock your time, 10 o'clock mm-hmm. my time, et cetera. I was like, no, Patrick, get it backwards. And I was like, we're doing this at 10. Mm. I wish that we were doing it at 10, but we're not.
We're doing it tonight. I'm awake, that's baby. The Patrick, Patrick, Patrick's uh, snaked his way to being in charge of Game of the Year way. Whoops, we're here an hour early. Are <laughs> we here 50 Rick. minutes late? Yes, but in reality, we're here 45 minutes early. If you think about it, from my it. Oh, man. Owned. Damn. Oof. Wow. Owned. <clears throat> Mike sounds Patrick a little Rick. hot, Austin. Oh. That sounds right. I was up late, late watching... Um, that movie about the Chicago guys. Chicago you, you finished it before the Game Awards, though. The Chicago, just a bunch of the Chicago movies. guys. Yeah. I'm sleepy. Hey, the Chicago yeah. guys. That's how a Chicago guy sounds. Was it a movie Chicago so guys. bad that it forced you immediately to go to sleep? Yes. Rob Zachney. I was like, well, time for bed. It really had the same reaction for me, man. That final circular pan of the courtroom really takes a lot out of you. Oh, my God. The end of the movie, they, um, Sorkin decides to end the, the movie names, right? by reading all the names of the Vietnam vet people who died, which, and then everyone gives them a standing ovation because everyone respects the troops, even the yeah. FBI. Yeah, if you had, yeah. these people. if you hadn't understood what was happening in this final scene as they read the names, Joseph Gordon-Levin like turns to his Department of Justice like handler and is like, "Show respect for the fallen," and I was like, "Kill me." It just, and it just, it hurt. You know, it hurt to watch. It was not very good. I didn't Doesn't like it very much. Very but anyway, petition to change our theme song to a cover of TV Party Tonight, except it's Podcast Party Tonight. Podcast Party <laughs> Today. Today. <laughs> um, are we doing? We're actually. Are we using the mellow Christmas music, holiday music again? Yeah. 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 Didn't you, didn't you send us fixed ones? <laughs> no, that was a joke. Did you oh, okay. not I listen to I, that? I didn't actually click it. <laughs> I didn't click it. It's him gassing up Uragi. It's very funny. Okay. It's very good. All right. Uh, this time I have time that is open. Oh, that's a good oh. idea. I do not. There we go. <laughs> so, my dog is... Was that 9 a.m. energy? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, TV reflection me. dog is here again, and uh, it's got to be kept in line and meters <laughs> on it. Wow. <laughs> um. All right, I'm recording. Oh, wait, I'm also recording, and yep. I got to open up a whole bunch of documents so I know what the freak we're doing today. Starting on hot takes, right? International takes. Mountain Day. Oh, also, I made a day. I made a thing. Hold on, I made a fucking drive. Oh, thank God. Just drop shit in there. Drive. He did it. He I, did I, it. I After did it. <laughs> three short I years, have two short done this whatever. So much. I don't know why I didn't think of this. Yeah, uh-huh. Here, just bookmark that. And then all you have to do is drag your file into the appropriate folder for the episode. We're oh, I love recording. that. I love I lo- this. I love this for us. I've already made folders <laughs> for everything today. <clears throat> and, some really 9 a.m. energy in the video call. Yeah. We're, I, I'm, fa- I'm, I'm getting ready to fake it. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. going to be as you low. you got to take it down to like a negative level, basically. Exactly. So you can first back up. Yeah. I've yeah. already watched 45 minutes, 101 Dalmatians, baby. Let's go. What? <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> Excuse me? I watched, 40, I watched 40 minutes of 101 Dalmatians. That's not like a euphemism. That's I thought like it was I, like a thing. I thought you were no. like, yeah. hey, guys, we're doing 45 minutes of 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> we're, Let's we're gonna go. Do 10, we're gonna do I was 10 like, burpees. shit, I love 45 minutes of 101 Dalmatians. That's my favorite game. <laughs> honey, honey, we're doing 45 minutes, 101 Dalmatians. 
It's lit. <laughs> Bring my custom set. <laughs> On the second day of Hanukkah, we. Yeah. God, oh, all right. I love this. Oh my happy god. Happy Hanukkah, folks. Yeah, happy Hanukkah. Um, God. Uh, are we, so this will be coming out on the 20, what? Something. Well, how many podcasts uh, are we doing this the week producing? of Christmas, like 21st through 25th? Or do we want to spread them out that's the, through to New Year's? That's the, well, because I could do we like, record, see how long they are, and then we can like, spread so them. I will not give dates in these then. No. No. Okay. So I would don't say the holidays that. because yeah, we yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. like, if, we don't know. Like if we want to split up the the release schedule one, we can. If we want to just do it as one, I yeah, mean, you know yeah. what I mean. We'll see like, how it is. Yeah. yeah, we'll see okay. how we feel about it. Sounds good. Uh, let's let's clap. Let's do uh, uh, thirty-five. <laughs> I got yeah. it. No, are you sure? It was on the thirty-five. Okay, she nailed it. Okay, okay, I believe. <laughs> okay, um, I nailed it yesterday. Strong too. confidence. <laughs> I nailed it. I believe. <laughs> 